Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 14 through 22. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. We're on now the seventh of seven messages to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, the last message. And here we learn four reasons why you should not be nauseating to Jesus. Four reasons why you should not be nauseating to Jesus. Let's hear the passage. If you don't have a a Bible, there's a Bible in the chair in front of you. It's a black hardcover, and you turn to page 1091, you'll find Revelation chapter 3, the big number, and beginning in verse 14, which is the small number. Here then, the word of the Lord, the message to Laodicea and to Bethany Baptist Church this morning. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed, and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and repent." See, I'm standing at the door. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I'll give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May His word and the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Father, we pray now with our Bibles open before us and with Your word having been read and having just heard You speak, we ask that You would continue to speak. We admit again that apart from You, we can do nothing. We are helpless, as this text says, we are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So we pray that you would come and help us, that you would give us, that you would fulfill our desperation for you, and that you would give us a sense of desperation for you. We pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word, that you would shape and shift and change our hearts to cling to Christ and desire you above all. We pray that you would satisfy us with your covenant love, with your passion for your glory in our joy, that we would rejoice and be glad in you all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why did Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Do you remember that question was raised to the the disciples? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus' response was, it's not the well, the healthy who need a doctor, 
It's a sick who do. I did not come to call the righteous to repentance. I came to call sinners. Jesus came for sinners. Now, the Pharisees who were asking the question didn't think they were sinners. They were complacent. Perhaps they were self-confident in their own religiosity. They're not the first people in the, the history of mankind to be confident in their own wisdom and um, relationship with God. There was another person named Adam who was with Eve who was tested by the serpent in the garden. And when tested, instead of relying and depending on the Word of God, he and his wife thought that they could figure it out on their own. They didn't need God's advice. They didn't need God's command to figure it out. And so they too were complacent and ate the fruit. Later on, God would put Israel, like He put Adam in the Garden of Eden, He would put Israel in the land of Canaan. And He would put them in this promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And He said to them in Deuteronomy 8, 12 12 through 14, He warns them, He says, listen, you're going to go there, you're going to get houses, you're going to become rich there. When you become rich there, do not grow proud and do not forget the Lord your God who redeemed you out of Egypt. It's going to happen. You're going to prosper, and when you prosper, you're going to be tempted to grow proud and forget who I am and who you need. You'll grow complacent and overconfident, much like the Pharisees who were confident in their spirituality, in their faith, in their religion, so much so so that they had the audacity and boldness to confront Jesus. As Christians, we want to faithfully conquer Satan in our battlefield. We just sang about it here in hymn insert number four, our call to war to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. We are in a battle against the captor, Satan, who seeks to take captive and keep captive those who do not know Christ and those who profess faith in Christ and are vulnerable to sin, which we all are. So we want, as Christians, to faithfully wage war against the captor, wage war against Satan in our battlefield. Not, we're not in some other time in history. We're not in some other location in the world. We're in southeast Los Angeles in the United States of America, the richest and most resourced country in the history of humanity. Maybe save the Garden of Eden. The problem is that we are not only needing to be aware of the test of adversity, trials that come in your life, we need to be aware of the test of prosperity. Are you familiar with the test of prosperity? It's also a test for your soul. Satan doesn't only get at you through adversity, he tries to get at you through prosperity. And this is probably more dangerous since the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And Christianity can actually make peace with prosperity, not just in the prosperity gospel, which is a false gospel, that you can be prosperous before the end, before Christ returns, as if all you need to do is put your faith and pay your pastor and you'll be rich, wealthy, and healthy. It's a false lie. It's a false gospel. It's a lie from the devil. But prosperity even leeches on to true Christianity in some ways, and it worms its way into our church and churches that preach the gospel. To be honest, the test of prosperity scares me. It freaks me out. I've quoted this before. You'll probably hear this quoted once a year at this church. It's a quote from John Piper in the book, The Hunger for God. Listen to this. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. 
It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And most deadly, the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Jesus said some people hear the word of God and a desire for God is awakened in their hearts. But then, as they go on their way, they are choked with the worries and riches and pleasures of this life, Luke 8, 14. In another place, he said, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. The pleasures of this life, the desires for other things, these are not evil in themselves. These are not vices. These are gifts of God. They are your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking. And all of them can become deadly substitutes for God. It's dangerous to be in a prosperous society like ours. It's dangerous to be prosperous. It's so dangerous that Jesus actually threatens those who let that prosperity get into their soul. And so the main call here is in verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and, what's the command here? Be zealous and repent. Repent of what? Repent of lukewarmness. So the main goal here would be repent of your lukewarmness or stop your nauseating lukewarmness so that you conquer Satan. Simple enough. Repent from your lukewarmness. Stop your nauseating lukewarmness. You could say it that way. So that you conquer Satan. Now, there's four reasons Jesus gives us in this passage. The Holy Spirit says, let him who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So the Holy Spirit is speaking to us today from verse 22. That's what the Spirit has written. The Spirit is speaking to you today and to us today. And he gives us four reasons why we are to repent and stop our nauseating lukewarmness. Why we're to be passionate and zealous and repent from lukewarmness. Reason number one, because Jesus rebukes you. Secondly, Jesus threatens you. Thirdly, Jesus loves you. And lastly, Jesus rewards you. So here are four reasons why you need to be zealous, be passionate, and repent from lukewarmness. Because Jesus rebukes you, because he um, threatens you, because he loves you, and lastly, because he rewards you. So let's look at those one at a time, beginning with the first one. So repent from nauseating lukewarmness because Jesus rebukes you. He rebukes your sin. Look at verse 14 again. Here we get the description of Jesus. He's the one speaking. The Spirit is speaking and Jesus is speaking. There's a unity between them. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, and I'll tell you a little, bit, a little bit about their city in a moment. Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. You have three descriptions of Jesus here. He's the Amen. What does it mean to be the Amen? 
To be the amen is to be the confirmation. It means truly, let it be. It's a yes. Jesus is the confirmation. He's the yes. He's the amen. So for him, he's the yes from God, the confirmation of all that God has promised and covenanted in the old covenant or in, the, in all of his covenants, the covenant to Abraham and his covenant to Israel, and his covenant to David and his covenant to the new Israel. Jesus is the amen. In, all him, in, in him, all the promises of God are yes, it says in 2 Corinthians 1.20. He's not only the amen, he's the faithful and true what? Faithful and true. Look at verse 14. The faithful and true what? Witness. When we say he's faithful and true, that means you can rely on him. He's not lying. He's telling the truth. But he's a witness. And what do witnesses do? They take the stand in court, and what do they do? They what? They testify. So Jesus is not only the confirmation of God's promises, he's the one testifying about God's promises. He's the one who's telling you about what God has said and what God has done. He is not only the revelation of God, he's the speaker who's speaking the revelation of God. He is the witness who testifies. If you read on through Revelation, you notice that Christians are called witnesses. They testify to the word of Jesus all the time. And the only reason Christians testify is because who's testifying behind every true Christian? Jesus Christ himself. As you gospelize your neighbors and each other, Jesus is the one testifying through you. That's what he does. He's the faithful and true witness. And not only is he the faithful and true witness, he's not only the testimony and the testifier, it says here he is the originator of God's creation. Now, you guys know I like the CSB. It's, one of my, it's my favorite translation, or it's the one I, I chose to use. But it's wrong here, I think. <laughs> Shocker, right? It's, I think it's wrong. It might be right. It might be right. The, the literal translation is the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The beginning of God's creation. Why does that sound uncomfortable if you're a Christian? That Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. Why? Why, did, why might that make a Christian sound, feel uncomfortable? Sounds like he was created, that he's not the creator, that Jesus had a beginning and he's not eternal. He's not fully God or truly God. That's what it could sound like. And so that is wrong. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that. But if you believe the book of Revelation, Jesus calls himself the first and the last. And then God calls himself the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And then Jesus calls himself the first and the last and the beginning and the end. So if God is eternal without beginning or end, neither is Jesus, the Son. So when we see the beginning of God's creation, it cannot mean that Jesus had a beginning. In the beginning was the Word. He was already there in the beginning. So that's wrong. That can't be. When it says beginning of creation, it doesn't mean He was created. It doesn't mean He's the first creation. That's false. That's a heresy. But it doesn't... So some people might say what the CSB says. He's the originator of God's creation. He's the one... He's the beginning in the sense that it comes from Him. Like the beginning of my children would be um, their parents. That's the beginning. That's how they're conceived. So the beginning of children are their parents. So you might say, well, Jesus is the beginning in the sense that through him, creation came. That might be true. So the originator of God's creation. So the CSB might be right. I don't think that's the right interpretation, though. You could decide for yourselves. In the CSB, though, like most good translations, they have a footnote with giving you an option. And so in the footnote, it says, not only could he be the originator of God's creation, it says that if it's the beginning of God's creation, I think that's the right translation. What does it mean, though? Revelation 1.5 gives us, gives us a clue. In Revelation 1.5, it says, Grace to you and peace from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, faithful witness, faithful and true witness, the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. 
In other words, he's the beginning. Well, firstborn of the dead is referring to his what? We're celebrating this Lord's Day. Every Sunday we celebrate the what? The resurrection. If he's the firstborn from the dead, he's the beginning of the new creation. The new creation, Revelation 22, begins with who? Jesus Christ. When that dead body on Saturday night, buried on Friday, when that dead body began to breathe, that very first breath of life again, that was the beginning of the new creation. And all of your regeneration is tied into the resurrection of Christ. And the whole new universe that's to come is only going to come because it is united to or in Christ Jesus. He is the beginning of the new creation. All right? So this is why we need to listen to him. He's the amen. He's the faithful and true witness who never lies. And he is the beginning of the new creation. That's why we should listen to him. Now, he's speaking to the church at Laodicea here in verse 14. And is Jesus only speaking to this church or is he speaking to all the churches? This church only or all the, all the churches? All of them. And we know that from verse 22. Let him who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit is speaking to the churches. Not church, to the churches. So Jesus is directly addressing this church, but it applies to Bethany Baptist Church and every Christian of every local church throughout history before he returns. So Jesus names the sin here in verse 15. Listen to him. What's the sin? I know your works. I know you. You can't hide from me. I know you inside and out, and that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. It would be better for you to be cold or hot. So, verse 16, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my, my, my mouth. So what's the sin here? What, why, why are they detestable to Jesus? Because they are not hot, they're not cold, they are what? Lukewarm. They're lukewarm. So what does it mean to be lukewarm? Some people say, like even some of my favorite preachers and theologians, say being lukewarm means they're apathetic. There's no passion for God. They're not hot for God. They're not on fire for Jesus. Certainly, you should love the Lord your God with all your what? All your heart. You should be on fire for God. But if you take hot as on fire for God, Jesus says, you're neither hot nor what? Cold. I wish that you were hot or cold. I mean, does Jesus want you to either be on, hot for, like on fire for God or just completely cold and, and rejecting Jesus? That doesn't make sense. I don't think. So lukewarmness isn't do, it doesn't have to do with passion for God. What does it have to do with? Well, hot water, back in those days, there were two cities nearby, Hierapolis, which was about six miles from Laodicea. They were famous for their hot springs. One of those who are considering membership in our church are at hot springs. Our family last, last year, we, took, uh, we, we spoke at a retreat, and there were hot springs. And you can go to the hot springs and take a bath in there or just, just uh, relax in there. And when you, take, when you relax in there, it's supposed to do good for your body. So hot springs brought health. The waters there were as hot as 95 degrees Fahrenheit in Hierapolis, and people would go there as a natural spa to heat water, and that would bring health and healing. So that's six miles from Laodicea, and that was famous for everyone there at the church. They knew all about that spot. That was a vacation spot. And then the church at, Wa at Colossae, or the city of Colossae, which was also near Laodicea, they had cold springs. And those cold springs were refreshing. Now, Laodicea, by contrast, it was a city that had no natural water. So guess what? They had to pipe the water in from out of town. 
So you got a long aqueduct to, to pipe in water, and by the time that the hot water might have gotten there or the cold water might have gotten there, it wasn't cold and refreshing anymore. Or it wasn't hot and healing anymore. It was neither hot nor cold. It was lukewarm. And so um, it was detestable. You would drink that lukewarm water, and it, wasn't, it didn't have a healthy effect. It wasn't refreshing. And so um, it was detestable. We'll talk about what it means that it's detestable uh, when we talk about Jesus threatening you, but let's move on here. What, okay, so lukewarmness is being ineffective. You're neither, health, you're neither giving health nor, you're, nor are you refreshing. You're useless. You're useless water. You're ineffective water. Now, what does it mean? Why are they ineffective? What's making this church ineffective? Verse 17 gives us our clue. Look at verse 17. What does it mean to be ineffective? For you say, I'm what? I'm rich, I have become wealthy, and I need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So here's why they're lukewarm. Why are they ineffective? They are ineffective because they think they don't need anything. They say, I'm rich, I have become wealthy. And Jesus says, you're actually poor. You're bankrupt. You're not only poor, you can't make money because you're blind. And you're so poor that you're actually naked. You have nothing. This church was lukewarm because they were no longer desperate for God's grace. They didn't feel they needed God anymore. Now, Christians today, church family, even you, even me, we can say, of course we need God. It's not saying I need God. It's living like we need God. Do you live like you need God? If we just took a snapshot of your week, would it be clear that man, that, that man or that woman, she is desperate for God. Look at her. Look at her life. She, she, she feels like she's so desperate that she needs God so badly in her life that she does certain things in her life that show her desperation, that show his desperation. These Christians might have prayed right before they went to sleep, if that. Maybe prayed before a meal to say thanks to God. But other than that, they pretty much ran without thinking about God. They didn't really need Him. Of course, if you ask them, do you need Jesus for salvation? They'd say yes. But in their lives, functionally, day to day, they acted like they were rich, they become wealthy, and they need nothing. They were self-sufficient. This is much like the city of Laodicea. This city, unlike other cities in the Roman Empire, when they were struck by an earthquake in A.D. 60, other cities needed to borrow money from the, the empire. Laodicea said, no, thank you. We don't need any aid from the outside. And they paid for, um, they paid for their, uh, their damages themselves. The, the city was wealthy. The city was prosperous. And the church was acting the same, as if they were spiritually wealthy and prosperous. And brothers and sisters, just so we're aware, this is completely delusional. This is not true. I mean, if you tried to help someone, just imagine, we do have some, some people who are poor and homeless in our city here in, in Bellflower, in southeast L.A. If you tried to help someone who was bankrupt, they literally had no money, no money at all. You talk to them, but not only do they have no money, they're actually blind. They can't see. And they're naked. Okay, so imagine this. Here in Bellflower, just you're, you're, you're going down the street and you see someone who's naked 
out in public. That would get your attention, right? They're broke completely. They have nothing. They have no clothes. They have nothing. They're blind. They're naked. And, and, uh, and, and, they're, and they're poor. And then, and then you say, hey, can I help you? I want, how can I help you? And then they say, I don't need help. I'm okay. I got this. What would you think? They're, that's, that's delusional. Of course you need help. You don't have anything. You're blind. You can't even see where you're going. You don't even have a walking stick. We could complicate it just to give a more accurate spiritual picture. What if they're uh, quadriplegic? I mean, that's kind of, you know, they can't, they're, they're paralyzed from the neck down. That's how we are spiritually. Without Jesus, you're paralyzed, naked, bankrupt, and blind. Is that how you lived this last week in your life? That you sense that without Jesus, that's how you were? And that you needed him to walk? You needed him to see? You needed him for clothes? Jesus says that when you don't sense this, you're lukewarm. And when you don't sense it, and you trust your own senses, and you're delusional, you're not only hurting yourself, you're ineffective to help other people. You can harm other people. What if, what if the DMV gave driver's license out, uh, um, you know, gave driver's license, official licenses to people who thought they were good drivers? That's all you need to do. You don't have to take a test. You just had to think you were a good driver and that you were a safe driver. Would you be excited about that and to hit the road? Probably not, right? Because your own self-estimation and the self-estimation of your neighbors is not necessarily comforting to you that you're going to be safe on the road. You're, you're thankful for tests and standards, right, of safety. Not just someone else's thought that they're okay. And yet as Christians, we can say we're okay and then try to minister in that light as if we're drivers who think we're safe in driving and we're actually a hazard to those around us. Jesus reminds us that we will always need him. We will always need him. He'll keep filling us up over and over again, but we'll always need him. You never mature in your Christian life to the point where you don't need the Bible, where you don't need prayer, where you don't need repentance, where you don't need faith, where you don't need Christian family to rebuke you and hold you accountable and to encourage you. You'll never get beyond that. You will always need Jesus. Always. And all of his means of grace. So Christians, receive rebuke, receive his confrontation, receive his correction. Jesus is rebuking us here. If you're not a Christian, I have a question for you. When someone corrects you and rebukes you, do you receive that as a gift or a curse? Is that a blessing to you when someone corrects you or is that a burden? Jesus is calling you to repent because he loves you. And correction is not a bad thing when they're correcting you in the right direction. That's like getting mad at, like getting mad at a doctor because they give you the right diagnosis and the right pathway to being healed. Don't tell me what to do. If you're not a Christian, you're here, just know that Christians have a problem with it as well. Right, Christians? When was the last time you welcomed rebuke enthusiastically and thanked the person genuinely for rebuking you? It should be more often in our lives. If they're not rebuking you, maybe there's something in your life that makes you unapproachable. As a society, we must strive for a culture of civility, which means we need to be able to disagree in America. And yet, even as that's our message, that we need to disagree civilly with civility, I mean, 
we should also realize as Christians, our message to the world is, even though we do that, there is a right and wrong. And Jesus is Lord over all. He is the faithful and true witness. So we'll continue to speak into this culture. All right, so let's repent of lukewarmness. Number one, because Jesus rebukes you. Secondly, and a little bit more quickly, repent from nauseating lukewarmness, not only because Jesus rebukes you, but because Jesus threatens you. And what does he threaten you with in verse 16? So because you are neither hot nor cold, I am going to what? But lukewarm, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. I'm going to, you make me gag, Jesus is saying. Church at Laodicea, Christians at Laodicea, Christians at Bethany Baptist Church, some of you, maybe us as a church, you make me gag. You make me want to vomit you out in your lukewarmness. So Jesus is threatening us that he'll spit us out, that he'll vomit you out of his mouth. Now, if I gave you a water, if I gave you a water bottle with water in it, and I told you that while you were drinking it, drinking it, that I had a problem filling up the whole bottle because I didn't have enough clean water, so I added a little bit of water that was sort of in the sewer, just a little bit, just to make fill it to the top. And you heard, as you're drinking, you heard me say that, and it registered into your mind what I just said. You would immediately what? Spit out the water. And then get angry at me, of course. Now, that, that's, a, that's a picture, perhaps, of what Jesus is doing here. Now, I know I have been cursed. Oh, I, I, no, that's not a curse. That's too strong. Let's, I've been gifted with, I've been gifted with superior taste buds. Some of you guys know that. I have really, I have some, most humans, normal taste buds, I have, I've been gifted with really sensitive, accurate taste buds. That can taste nastiness that most humans can't, can't taste, like ketchup, onions, mustard, Coca-Cola. Just kidding. Now, so I know it's nasty even though no, most normal people don't, so I know what to, not, what to reject. Now, you might, act, you, might, you might disagree with the accuracy of my taste buds, but one thing we do not disagree on together is the accuracy of Christ's taste buds, Right? He knows, he knows what's distasteful. He knows what's distasteful. He's accurate. He knows what lukewarmness is, and he will not hesitate to vomit out unrepentant, stubborn, uncorrectable, lukewarm Christians who are deaf and refuse to hear his call to repent. Jesus will vomit you out. He'll spit you out of his mouth. That's a threat. And what does it mean to be spit out of Christ's mouth, to be vomited out of Christ's mouth? It means... It means that Christ will separate himself from you. This cannot mean that you're a true Christian. Some people make it, make, it think, make it feel that way, but that's not the threat. The threat here is that even though you're a publicly professing Christian, even though you self-profess that you are a Christian, Jesus is saying, you're not a real Christian. I know you're a member of a church. I know you say you're a Christian. I know you say you believe the gospel. I know you could even recite the gospel, but you're not a real Christian. Your lukewarmness and your inability and refusal to repent evidences that you're not truly Christian. And so I will vomit you out of my mouth. I will separate myself from you, and you will be under the damnation and condemnation that all sinners are a part of, apart from faith in me. This is scary, but this is a real threat. Jesus will vomit you out. So let me apply this before we move on. If you are a spiritually stubborn Christian, you need to understand Jesus is not messing around. He will vomit you out of his mouth. You need to stop being stubborn. 
you need to be teachable. You need to thank God when he rebukes you. You need to thank other Christians when they correct you. You need to stop being defensive and making excuses and getting angry every time Christians correct you. Stubborn Christians who are lukewarm will get vomited out of his mouth. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might say, the reason I'm not a Christian, PJ, is because Christians are hypocrites. They say one thing, but they live another way. Well, if that's what you're thinking as, as someone who's not a Christian, I could never be a Christian because Christians are hypocrites. Just know, Jesus also knows that they're hypocrites. Here, they're called what? Lukewarm. And Jesus also rejects hypocritical Christianity. Now, a true Christian is not someone who's sinless. A true Christian is someone who repents from their sins and asks God and other people for forgiveness when they sin because they rest in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They trust in Christ as their Savior. They're not saving themselves. They trust in Christ as their Savior. That's a true Christian. But if you, as, an, as someone who's not a Christian, rejects Christianity because Christians are hypocrites, just know Jesus hates hypocrisy more than you do. And he's saying, don't reject me because you reject hypocrites. I reject hypocrites too. So if you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to consider Jesus. If you're a Christian, brothers and sisters, you need to feel the scandal and shame of self-sufficiency. You need to repent of self-sufficiency. You need to be like a child. Children here, thank you, children, for reminding us by your life that we are dependent on God. Doesn't Jesus talk about children as those who are dependent? They're, they're, they have faith because they keep asking their parents for things. Children, when you ask your parents for help and you say their name over and over and over again, you're reminding us that we are just like you. We need God's help. And we forget that as parents and adults. So thank you, children, for reminding us. Parents, do you feel your need for God when you're parenting your children? Do you feel desperate? Spouses, are you open to getting help for fighting sin in your marriage from others outside of your marriage? Is your spouse scared to correct you because of the way you respond to correction with defensiveness and arrogance? Ask your spouse, am I easy to correct or am I difficult to correct? Are you, do, you feel, do you feel encouraged to correct me or do you feel discouraged in correcting me? Okay, give your spouse the gift of that question today and prepare for the response. You could say, if, if I would not get mad at you for your answer to this question, then ask the question and see what they say. Singles, are you taking time to build relationships where Jesus can rebuke you through other people? Or are you using your singleness for isolation, where you have no friendships that are meaningful enough and friends who are um, courageous enough to speak into your life? Workers and students in the workplace and at school, do you feel God's need for grace in your work and in your studies? Retirees, do you feel your need for God's grace to use your time wisely and finish well? Christ calls us in verse 19 to repent. And what does repentance involve? It involves agreeing that it's a sin and agreeing with your passion against it. It, it means um, accepting Christ's grace and forgiveness and asking God to change you deeply and truthfully, sincerely. Now, let me just confess my own sin here. I texted my wife last night and said, you know what? I'm being really convicted by this passage, and um, so I just want to let you know what I'm going to say before I say it out loud, just so you don't, you're not the, you don't hear it after and like, why did you never tell me this? So I was thinking, Lord, where am I lukewarm in my life? So here, you can pray for me and hold me accountable, brothers and sisters. For me, 
This means, if I'm going to agree with Christ, his rebuke of PJ, are you being lukewarm? I have been lukewarm and self-sufficient, and here's where. Um, if I was really dependent on Christ and desperate for him, I would be more disciplined with our finances and more generous with them, with a big, with a big overall plan. So some of you guys know the... Um, Financial Peace University seven-step plan. We're on step four, so we're okay financially. We're not doing anything um, unlike, you know, sinful maybe in some ways. Well, maybe sinful not being generous. So we check off all the boxes, our giving percentage and things like that, and then we just kind of move along, and there's no desperation to be more generous. So I was praying and thinking, Lord, I need to be more strategic with how we invest for the kingdom. Even if it means saving up now to get to that place of giving generously at the later part of our, our, our wealth building, I need to change. And if I was really desperate, Lord, I would, I would, get, I would be more disciplined. Not only would I be more disciplined now, um, I, would, I, would, um, I would encourage, I would, also, I would also disciple my children towards that. We, we, we say it in words, but I don't really model it with my life. And if I was regularly giving generously and sacrificially, wouldn't you feel like you need God all the time because you're tempted towards materialism? If you're really giving generously all the time, you're like, Lord, I need your help because my heart is being chained. And so you'd, you'd constantly give. And, uh, and so God has given us, given me personally, so many opportunities to give towards missions and other things. And I've s shared some of them with the church along the way. And I want to give to a lot of these things. And I'm like, Lord, I, I don't have it in my budget. Well, fix your budget. <laughs> you know, change it. Uh, tighten up so that you could give more. You're not desperate enough, PJ. You're self-sufficient. You think you got this. You think you don't need me. And you desperately need me because you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Let me turn to one passage here because I, 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 I'm guessing this is not my, only my sin, though I'm speaking for my sin. But look at 1 Timothy 6, or listen to 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. This is a passage where I'm getting it from. This is my own personal application, but I think it applies to most Americans because if you are American and you own two cars or you have two cars, um, then you're richer than, you know, the 95 or 99% of the world. So you're rich. You might think you're tight on your money, but you're rich by the world standards. So listen to 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19, in case God is moving our church to be more sacrificially giving. Instruct those who are rich, and I consider most members of our church rich. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct the rich to do what is good, to be rich in good works. There it is, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. So if you are rich, which most Americans are, then be rich in what? In good works. Be rich in sacrificially giving. Be rich in generosity, not rich in accumulating. And every Christian here who's rich needs to heed that. Let us not be self-sufficient, lest Jesus spits us out, of, out, spits us out his mouth. So Jesus threatens us. So let's go back again. Why should we repent from lukewarmness? Number one, Jesus rebukes you. Number two, Jesus what? Threatens you, threatens to separate himself from you. Thirdly, Jesus loves you. Repent from lukewarmness because Jesus loves you. Look at verse 19. 
or look at verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed in your shameful nakedness, not be expo um, exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. This is the sweetest part of the message. Just talked about Jesus vomiting you out of his mouth. It's not the sweetest part of the message. Here's the sweetest part of the message. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus explicitly states his love for the church. Some of the most profound songs are the simplest songs. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He loves us in three ways, verse 18, verse 19, verse 20. In verse 18, he loves us because he advises us. In verse 19, he loves us because he rebukes us. In verse 20, he loves us because he invites us. He advises us in verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed in your shameful nakedness, not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. Now, notice this. Jesus offers us things to buy for our exact needs. He offers us gold refined in the fire so that we, we might be rich. Why? Because we are wretched, pitiful, and poor. You're poor. Jesus says, buy what? Buy gold. You're naked. Jesus says, buy what? White clothes, so that your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and you are blind, you can't see, so Jesus tells you to buy what? Ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. Now, Laodicea was also known for their ophthalmology, and so they were, they were um, really good at, at restoring eyesight there in the ancient world. Jesus is saying, don't go to the world for these things. For real sight, go to me. Don't go to the world for clothes to feel better about yourself. That's one reason we buy clothes, right? To feel better about ourselves and to feel good about how we look. Jesus says, go to me. Don't buy um, gold or riches of this world. Buy gold refined in the fire from me, and I will provide it for you. I love you, so I advise you to buy from me. Why should we buy from him? Because Jesus wants us rich. Why should, we want, why should we be clothed from him? Because Jesus wants us clothed. Why should we get ointment from him? Jesus wants us to see him. Jesus loves us. He cares for you. He wants to provide for your needs and your greatest need of all, which is himself. So how do you, how do you buy? What did Jesus just say? You're wretched, pitiful. And what's the third word there? In verse 17, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, or bankrupt. How do you buy when you're poor? Anyone? Jesus says, buy from me, but you got no money. How can you buy when you have no money? Is Jesus contradicting himself here? How do you buy from God when you have no money? Anyone? Take a loan? <laughs> Borrow from him? It's good. Yeah, we're bankrupt and broke. Listen to Isaiah 55, 1 through 4. Isaiah 55, 1 through 4 answers the question. Listen to it. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. You without silver, come buy and eat. Did you hear what he said? You without silver, you without money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Oh, there it is. Buy it without silver and without what? Cost. 
Why do you spend your silver on what is not food and your wages on what, what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention. Here's how you buy. How do you buy it if it's free? Here it is, verse 3. Pay attention and come to me. Pay attention to me. Come to me. Listen so that you will live. I will make a permanent covenant with you. So how do you buy when you have no money, no silver? You buy what is free. You buy by listening. You purchase it by paying attention. You purchase it by coming to God, coming to the Lord Jesus. Now, why? Why the Lord Jesus? Here, he says, pay attention, listen to me so that you'll live. Now, listen to this. I will make a permanent covenant with you. Here's why you could buy. I'll make a permanent covenant with you on the basis of the faithfulness, of the faithful kindnesses of David. Why will God make a covenant with you when you're broke and poor? Why will God give to you when you're broke and poor? Because of the covenant faithfulness, the faithful kindnesses of who? Of David. Now, this is written 300 years, no, maybe closer to 400 years after David was dead. What do you mean the faithful kindnesses of David? Here's what he means. Isaiah 55, verse 4. Since I have made him, now listen to this, just because you read Revelation 3. Since I have made David a witness, a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. God has made David a witness, and now you can buy when you have no money. Who is the faithful and true witness? Who is the amen in this passage, in Revelation 3? Jesus Christ. He is David. He's the son of David. He's the one who fulfills David's covenant. He is the ruler of all. And because Christ has come, because Christ has fulfilled the covenant, because he died for sinners and rose from the dead, your salvation, your gold, your white clothes, your ointment is what? It's free. You just need to come and buy from Christ. So come to the Lord with your neediness because he's generous. I love one of my favorite songs, Come Ye Sinners Poor and Needy. You know that hymn? Come Ye Sinners Poor and Needy. It says this, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth, the only fitness God requires, is to feel your need of him. Do you feel that you need God? That's all God wants you to do. Listen, brothers and sisters, listen if you're not a Christian. God is not asking you to, to, to fix yourself first before you can have gold and white clothes and ointment. All you need is to feel that you need him. You just need to feel that you need him because you already truly need him. Just feel it. Feel desperate. Get desperate. And then come to the Lord. One of the things I do as a pastor regularly to church members as I try to help you grow is I wait for you to get desperate. Like I'll say something to you, I'll try to speak the truth and love to you, but I'm trying to measure your desperation. Because when someone isn't desperate, they're hard to teach, right? You're not teachable until you're desperate. Once you really know you need change, then you're like, help me, what do I need to do? How, what, what scripture do I need to apply in my life? But when Christians are not desperate, they can't grow because they're self-sufficient. So do you feel your need for Jesus? Until you feel desperate, you're not going to grow. So Jesus loves us by advising us. But he also loves us, verse 19, by rebuking us. And we talked about rebuke already, so we don't need to go too far into that. But just understand this. Rebuke is a gift from Jesus because his rebuke truly leads us away from danger and disappointment and destruction. 
Jesus' rebuke leads us back to the right path so that we bless those we love in this world. Jesus' rebuke fills us with hope that we could be restored when we sin. In other words, rebuke is a gift. If you feel like rebuke is, is not love, you have been deceived by Satan. True rebuke is love. Jesus said, as many as I love, I what? I rebuke and discipline. As many as I love. If I love you, I rebuke and discipline you. If I don't love you, I don't rebuke and discipline you. So what does that mean for us, brothers and sisters? Welcome and seek out Christ's loving rebuke from Scripture and from your church family as we speak the truth and love to each other and gospelize each other. If you're discouraged in your Christian life, some of you brothers or sisters are discouraged in this season, just know that Jesus is rebuking you to kill your joy killers that's sucking the joy out of your life. He's not trying to push you down further in your discouragement. He's like, hey, you know the things that are, you know why you're discouraged? Because you are believing these lies and I'm rebuking you, not because I'm trying to push you down further. I'm trying to rebuke you to build you up, to take the joy killers out of your life that's sucking the life out of you. If you're, if you're feeling weak in your Christian life, Jesus rebukes you to give you strength. If you're stumbling into your sins, Jesus rebukes you to help you find your footing again. If you're more than stumbling, you're actually stubborn in your sin, Jesus rebukes you as an effective moisturizer to soften your hard heart. If you're encouraged in your Christian life or you're feeling strong, Jesus rebukes you so that you don't get self or you don't get complacent. If you're doing well right now, praise the Lord, but don't rely on how well you're doing. Rely on who? On Jesus. If you're a child, Jesus is loving you when your parents are lovingly correcting you. Children, Jesus is loving you when your parents are correcting you. Parents, Jesus is loving you when His Spirit is lovingly convicting you when you're parenting and you're sinning. Spouses, Jesus is loving you when your spouse rebukes you. Single people, single brothers and sisters, Jesus is loving you when He tells you that He's enough for you and that while having a closer companion might be helpful, it is not essential. Jesus is. And His rebuke is a rebuke of love. Not only does He rebuke us lovingly, uh, verse 20, go to verse 20. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus loves us by inviting us. This is perhaps the most thrilling of all, that Jesus loves us by inviting us. We usually hear this as an evangelistic text to non-Christians. I don't know if you're aware of all the secret verses on in and out um, cups and um, French fry boats and things like that, but um, one of them is Revelation 3.20 which is, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And we use that as an evangelistic text. And you could apply it that way. Christ does um, call non-Christians. It's a valid application, but it's not the meaning of the text initially. He's not talking to non-Christians. He's talking to professing Christians who are lukewarm. Lukewarm Christians, I'm standing at the door of your heart and I'm knocking. If you hear my voice and you open up and let me in, I'll come in and commune with you. This is beautiful. What does this teach us? Jesus is present. I stand at the door and knock. Sometimes you feel like Jesus is far away from you when you're lukewarm. He's not far away. He's at your door, the door of your heart. He's knocking. He's present. Not only is he present, he's actively pursuing. He's not saying, he's not folding his arms and standing in the corner like, well, when you're ready and you're desperate enough, you come to me, and then I'll, I'll think about opening up my arms to you. You fix yourself first, and then I'll, then I'll commune with you. Is that what Jesus is doing here? 
No, he's actually at the door knocking. He's actively pursuing the lukewarm, hard-hearted Christian. Not only that, Jesus desires to commune with you personally. This is why we say as Christians, the essence of Christianity is not religion, it's a relationship. Now, it is a religion. Every relationship has entailments. But at the core of Christianity, it isn't a religion. At the core, it's a relationship with Jesus, right? He wants to spend time with you. Jesus personally wants to commune with you. He wants alone time with you. So come in and eat. Open the door and let him eat. Eating there is a, is a sign in the ancient world of reconciliation. If, and it might be a good sign today. If you're, if you're uh, icy with somebody, if you're bitter with someone and you need to reconcile, invite them to a meal. It'll, be, it'll make reconciliation a lot easier when you're eating together. So brothers and sisters, commune with Jesus, draw near to him, call out to him. He's present, he wants to spend time with you. Here's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus will provide for us what we need because he was abandoned on the cross, wasn't he? Naked and destitute. Jesus restores us through rebuke because he was denied on the cross as well. Even though he never deserved a rebuke, it's almost like God, in forsaking him, rebuked him. And Jesus invites us to commune with him because he was cut off from communion with God, the Father. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, listen to this brief message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that God gives himself to you. God is the gospel. God is the creator. He made you. He made you to, to have a relationship with him and to relate to him in this world, and he holds you accountable to that. God is not only creator, he's also the court. God is the judge. He judges people for their sins. And the problem for all of us as people who are made in his image as humans is that we're all sinners. So we're all condemned to death. God is not only the creator and the court, he's also Christ. God became a man, truly God, truly man, and died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. That's Jesus. He died for your sins, and now God is king. Jesus Christ is crowned as king in his resurrection, and all those who repent from rebelling against this king, and instead they trust this king as their Lord and Savior and king and treasure, they'll be saved from their sins and redeemed forever. So if you're not a Christian, Jesus is calling you, he's inviting you to have forgiveness if you'll repent and turn away from your sins and trust in Christ as your king and as your Savior. If you have more questions about that, ask the Christian friend who brought you here today or a Christian church member here around you. I'll also be at the door on the way out if you want to ask me about that. There's nothing more we'd love to do than to talk to you about that. Look to Jesus because he loves you. Lastly, so if you're going to stop nauseating Jesus, if you're going to repent from lukewarmness, you need to repent because Jesus rebukes you, Jesus threatens you, and Jesus loves you. And lastly, Jesus rewards you. Last verse, verse 21. Look at verse 21. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. What's the reward here for the conqueror? The one who overcomes Satan? The one who overcomes sin? The one who overcomes the lukewarmness in their own hearts? The one who overcomes the, the church that's mixed with good and bad? To the overcomer, the one who conquers, I will give him the right to sit where? Sit with me where? On my what? On my throne. And where does, where, who sits on a throne? A what? A king. And what does he do from the throne? He rules. 
He reigns over his realm. And for Christ, what is his realm? The whole universe. Christ rules over the whole universe, the new heavens and the new earth. And you will sit with him on his throne, just as Christ also conquered and sat down with his father on his throne. How did Jesus conquer? Where did Jesus conquer? On the cross. Revelation 12, uh, 11, 12, 5 gives us a clue. He conquered by his death and resurrection and in his ascension. When Jesus died and rose from the dead, in his resurrection, he conquered Satan, sin and death. And he, took his right, he sat down at the right hand of God in his ascension. So Revelation is clear over and over again that there's only one who sits on the throne. And who's that? That's the God the Father. But then it starts saying that the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, in the center of the throne. You say there's one who sits on the throne, but then there's a lamb who's at the center of the throne, and he, um, he's in the midst of the throne, it says in Revelation, two different places. And then you read on, and then it says at the end of Revelation, in Revelation 22, verses 1 and 3, it says that um, there is the throne, the throne of God and of the lamb. So I thought it was only the father on that throne. No, it's the throne of God and of the lamb. So the father and son share the throne, over the whole universe. And here's the wonder of all wonders, that God has a space for Carrie and Connie Cadell to sit with Jesus on the throne ruling over the whole universe. Or Jim Armstrong. And he gives you the right to sit with him on the throne, the throne of God and of the Lamb. You're going to sit on the throne of the universe, and you're going to rule. That's why Revelation 22, 5 says, we will see his face, his name will be written on our foreheads, and we will reign with him forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, if you repent from your lukewarmness, if you conquer, the reason why you should conquer is because Jesus rewards you with a seat on his throne. It's got to be a pretty big throne for all of us to fit on this, right? For all his people to sit on, all the conquerors. But we're going to reign with him. The imagery, it's, a, it's an image, but the, the point is that we're going to reign over the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus. Do you remember when James and John wanted a, the, the best spots next to Jesus on his right and on his left? And Jesus said, that's not mine to give, but the Father in heaven. In one sense, and the other guys got mad. That should be our spots. Well, guess what? You don't get to sit on the right or left of Jesus. You sit on his seat. So James, John, and all Christians who are in their pride and arrogance, trying to be the first, and trying to get in front. Who cares where you sit? You're sitting on his throne. You get to sit on his throne as you repent from your lukewarmness. So brothers and sisters, remember our future reign with Christ, that Christ loves to give us the kingdom. We're going to share life and share Jesus as future kings and queens on the new earth. So brothers and sisters, as you interact with each other here as fellow church members, when you look at each other, remember you're looking at a future king and queen. And they're going to rule over the universe. So respect and honor each other appropriately. Don't badmouth and slander fellow Christians. They're fellow rulers of the new universe. If you're not a Christian, Jesus invites you to his throne. He invites you to have a seat on his throne and rule the new universe with us. If you'll repent from your sins and trust in him. So, to close and to summarize, repent of lukewarmness because Jesus rebukes you, Jesus threatens you, Jesus loves you, and Jesus rewards you with a seat on his throne. Here's the call to you to simplify. Brothers and sisters, 
spend time praying and meditating on why you're lukewarm. Look at your life, examine yourself, and see where you are self-sufficient and you're not desperate for Jesus. Find those areas, identify them, and go desperately to God for help. And then ask a fellow church member to help you. Simple enough application, right? If you're really desperate, ask for help from God first and other church members. Stop trying to do it on your own. Jesus gave you a church family for a reason. You're not sufficient on your own. You need Jesus and his body. If you don't, if you keep trying to do it on your own, you're going to be useless and ineffective in bringing people into the joy of Jesus Christ. You want to be useless? Don't ask for help. You will delude yourself into eternity as Jesus spits you out of his mouth. And Jesus will cut you off. He'll vomit you out. You'll be miserable for all eternity. But if you repent and you trust Jesus afresh and you ask Christ and his people for help, you will effectively bring healing like hot water and refreshment like cold water to others you share life with. You will sit on his throne and reign with him forever. And brothers and sisters, sweetest of all, you'll commune with Christ. You'll eat with him and he with you as he's wanting to enter into your heart to spend time with you afresh. No greater gift than communing with Christ. You know, in becoming lukewarm, the Pharisees, when they confronted Jesus and said, why, you know, um, why does he go talk with sinners and tax collectors? They became complacent. They thought they didn't need Jesus anymore. They thought they didn't need God. They didn't need grace. They thought that they were okay. And that was detestable to Christ. And you know what, as Christians, we've become like the Pharisees. We've become like Israel, where we're, we're sitting in our prosperity and we're not desperate. We become like Adam and Eve in the garden, where we think we got it and we can make our own decisions and the own direction of our life without God's words, without us desperately clinging to the words of God. But the good news is that Jesus took Adam's and Israel's failure. He took their penalty ultimately on the cross. And he took our penalty too. And not only did he take it on the cross, on the third day, he rose victoriously. And now, Jesus is right here at the door of your heart, knocking. Let him in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would open our hearts to you. Forgive us for lukewarmness and self-sufficiency. Help us to feel our need of you and to come to you and to your body with our needs. And make this a habit of our lives that we grow in and encourage others to do the same. In Jesus' name.